Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hello, coffee nerds. Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast. I'm your host, Valerian Rala. Are you ready for summer? There's so many cool things happening, like launching the Green Plantation International Store. Yes, that's my company in heart of Europe and one which won the World Aeroplace Championship in 2015. I am planning a soft launch to test our system and shipping reliability. And for that, I need volunteers worldwide. If you're interested to help me and get amazing specialty grade coffee 50% off, drop me an email at valerian at coffeeis.me or sign up in our Facebook group where I will post about this. I really appreciate your help. All I need from you is basically test the ordering process and let me know how fast did you get the package so we know how fast is our shipper delivered. The other amazing thing what's going to happen over this summer is that the hand ground grinders will finally ship. You don't know what hand ground is? Okay then, then this episode is definitely for you guys. Hand ground is a revolutionary hand grinder. The guys got funded via Kickstarter and they raised over $300,000 and Green Plantation was one of the proud backers. How did they do it, you might wonder. Yes, I wondered too, so I invited Daniel Vitiello and asked him about that. Daniel is going to tell us more about the grinders themselves, how did they get the idea, and of course he gives us tons of valuable tips how to do an amazing Kickstarter campaign. There's a truckload of useful information there, and I even might call this episode the golden episode. Before we start, a special big thanks to Michelle Broad and all the guys in coffeeis.me who helped me to prepare these questions. Thank you guys, thank you for the help, thank you for the support and enjoy this show. Hey Daniel, welcome to coffeeis.me podcast. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Yeah, thanks Valerina, really excited to be here. My first question uh, to almost all of my guests is you and coffee. How did you meet Mr. Coffee? Yeah, uh, I guess it's it's actually interesting. Uh, one of the questions we ask when people sign up to join Team Handground is uh, describe your relationship with coffee. And the answers we get are you, you would think it's asking someone about how they met their spouse. So um, it's, it's a great question to start off with. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with coffee for me, in, I, I mean, I drank it in college, but the first time I really experienced or had a sort of God-in-the-cup moment was when I was living in San Francisco. I lived in the Mission District, mm. and there was a coffee shop named Four Barrel, uh, which was just a few blocks away from me. And that was the first time where I, I had a cup of coffee and could just taste something that I had never tasted before. And it, and it wasn't only that, it was also the, the barista who, while he was making the coffee, um, was explaining the origin and how they sourced the beans. And it, it was this whole world that I had never really thought of or knew about before. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where it started. Oh, wow. So, so four, four Barrel is behind your passion to develop the hand ground. Yeah, it definitely... Uh, started the interest in coffee and then uh, be, took an interest in making better coffee at home. And it was when we were, you know, started learning and we need, learned that we needed to get a better grinder because at that time we had a blade grinder. And so we didn't have, we didn't want to spend a, a lot of money. Um, and we found the Hario burr grinder on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like kind of the, the standard that was uh, the entry-level burr grinder. And when we got it, um, and after using it for a bit, we started to just become frustrated with some of the features. So for instance, I would get my grind size dialed in for an AeroPress. And if you've used the skirting before, you'll know it has, uh, to change the grind size, you kind of have to disassemble the grinder a bit 
and then you have a like a wing nut that you spin on a threaded axle and that mm -hmm. raises and lowers the burr. And so I would get that setting dialed in just right and then my roommate would come and want to make a French press and change the setting. And there's no point of reference when you just have the wing nut spinning on that axle. So it was it just took a lot of time and like trial and error to get back to the setting that I originally had. And so it was that frustration that kind of led us to start brainstorming about how we would build a better hand grinder uh, if we were going to kind of rethink it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. Well, I totally hear you. And this one reason why I'm not in love with hand grinders, simply because I don't know where I'm at. Maybe, you know, one day I want to do a, a pour over, one day I want to do a finer AeroPress. And I forgot, you know, which one did I use last time? Was it, uh, so you are basically lost. And, you know, it's not that cheap to buy that Hario. So, you know, it's, I don't know, I think in Europe it's around 40 euros, I think. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's, so it's, it's, it's not a cheap grinder. And for that, it's, I don't think it has the features, you know, um, which it deserves. So I, I, I got a lot of frustration with uh, hand grinders. That's what I said in the beginning. So that's why I was excited when I saw yours uh, at that time under development. Okay, so we we can I can see you know where you're coming from, but on the other hand, uh, people nowadays they they like comfort. You know they don't want to grind with the hand. You know, uh, so why didn't you develop uh, electric grinder or something super duper mega you know fast and cool and uh, precise or whatever based on electricity? I think when we were looking at it, we were experiencing such a frustration with our our hand grinder. And then when we went and started looking at what else was on the market, we saw that there were a, a really a large number of electric grinders to choose from, um, from very different price points, many different brands. And when we looked at the manual grinders, we saw that there was essentially either the Hario Skirton the Porlex or the really high end would be the Lido. Mm -hmm. um, and I so like that one, by the way. I like that one. The, the Lido, yeah, it's mm -hmm. a great grinder. Um, it's just for what we were trying to do was to find a solution that for someone who's just getting into coffee, and we, we see that we were doing some research and saw that specialty coffee is on this trend that is growing quickly. So our, our assumption is there's going to be more people in the future who are taking an interest in kind of going through the same process we went through of they discover that this world of coffee and they want to take the first step into making better coffee. And that first step is to get a good grinder that's going to give you a consistent grind. And so what we wanted to do was to create a grinder that would be that good first step for someone where it's at a low enough price point um, that it's it's not you're not going to have to spend $150 on a really good electric grinder to get a good grind. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the reason of why we went <clears throat> the manual grinder versus electric is uh, much less competition, um, the the better price point, and then the third reason is uh, just the mechanics and the process of developing that product would be simpler. Where Brandon or I had never gone through the product development process before, so it seemed like um, that that would probably be a simpler problem to solve than trying to develop a, a complex super electric grinder. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I was hoping for an answer like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's cool. And, you know, other thing uh, which i kind of not big fan of it, Harios and these, you know, uh, similar grinders and on that price level is the speed of the grind. Like the the reason, the times when I use the grinder the most, hand grinder, is when I go for holidays. Let's say I go to Hawaii, you know, I'm the coffee guy in the family, so everybody wants coffee from me. And man, to grind, you know, like 50 or 60 grams of coffee on a Hario, that's, mm -hmm. that's a morning exercise, you know. <laughs> so I don't know how you guys designed it, but let's say on the Lido, uh, which is, we are talking about $200 now, right? It's hand grinder right. for like $200. It happens much faster. It's much more comfortable. It's great, but it's two hundred dollars. And as you said, a lot of like beginners who you know just want to get familiar with coffee, they will not invest two hundred dollars in, in in a grinder. I mean, I got it as a deal, so you know I probably would not invest in it before I knew it. You know, so 
yeah, I think that your strategy was pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. So hands on your heart. What was first? Was it uh, the idea that I want to do crowdsourcing and what kind of product I can do? Or was it the other way around? Was it the, oh, I want to do a better grinder, so let's use crowdsourcing? Mm -hmm. So um, it started with wanting to develop a better grinder. And then the crowdsourcing aspect, it's actually interesting how that became involved is kind of a, a core part of our process. We had the idea and we were thinking we wanted to make a better grinder and we needed a name for the project to put up a website. And so we kind of brainstormed different business name ideas and we had it narrowed down to four choices. It, I think I, there was some blog post I came across where they were using Amazon Mechanical Turk to gather data to test different business name ideas. And so the way that that works is we recorded each of each name idea uh, on, uh, I think, YouTube, just a digital recording of saying hangground.com. And other ones were like kaizencoffee.com. And so there were those four recordings. And then we created, uh, the way the survey worked is you would listen to the recording and then you would have to type in the name that you heard. So we were trying to test how easy is it for someone, like for an idea to spread via word of mouth. If, if you, Can you hear the name and then type it into a computer? Um, and then we asked other questions uh, about what words or associations come to mind what uh, other companies or related images. We asked a couple math questions and random questions to change their train of thought and then asked them to recall the names from earlier. So we were testing how easy was it for someone to hear the name once and then remember it. And so we then had the survey and we made a listing on Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is a service on Amazon where you can post a small task for a small reward. So I think we were paying 20 or 25 cents per entire survey response. And we surveyed, I think, 100 to 200 people. And we just learned so much from that. Um, our initial assumptions were Kaizen Coffee was going to be the name that we were going to go with because Kaizen is a, a Japanese philosophy of continuous improvement. Yep. And that's kind of an idea that we try to apply within our own lives and our business. So we really just liked that name. But what we learned was no one could hear the name Kaizen and then spell it. And the other problems were a lot of the associations with Kaizen were actually German. Exactly. And I was going to yeah, say that. Yeah. And so it was people were thinking of Kaiser and uh, the, so the, a lot of the imagery and associations that came up with that name weren't aligned with the brand that we wanted to try and build or the product we wanted to try and build. And so um, basically going through that experience and we kind of learned that by challenging our assumptions or just defining our assumptions and then challenging them by creating a survey and uh, putting that survey out to a large number of people, we could learn a lot. And so that's where the idea to take that same sort of process and apply it to the decisions we would be making in product development. That's where that came from. Wow. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of science into this. That's amazing. I mean, most of us, when we start companies, we go like, oh, well, I like this name, you know, so that's it. I mean, I, I like what you're saying because we are starting a, a roasting company here in the United States called Unleashed Coffee. And uh, I teamed up with a coffee farmer, William, uh, from Brazil, and we went through tons of names and it's so you know for me it became sort of like a painful process two month process to find the name because it's mm -hmm. like there's so much out there and by the way that the kaizen coffee was one of the <laughs> contenders i don't know why but oh, yeah, we yeah, also, yeah. yeah we also <laughs> like that but you know he, he actually uh said no because it's it sounds german i was like actually you're right it does sound german so that's why i reacted as i reacted but yeah i i, I can see that and i also like how you approach the idea that you know you embrace the crowd and if the crowd helped you to, you know, uh, select the right name, the same way you can apply, you know, uh, to your to your fundings. And we also tried to, you know, uh, address the crowd with the name. We did a small, we did few small uh, focus groups, 
but mm-hmm. um, we actually got new names <laughs> into the package. We didn't do a good job, I guess, explaining the focus group that this is the name, these are the names, and the, you have to work with this because then they started to, you know, submit new names, and we got distracted by that because we actually liked the ideas, you know. So, but um, I guess the name selection, we should make a special podcast on that because that's pretty uh, a cool thing. Yeah, and we actually we we have or we wrote an article a while back and we shared the survey and uh, the analysis because we did this like weighted analysis for when you get all the data in you can kind of score each of the responses and actually we have that in a google sheet um if anyone is interested we can share it oh yeah let's put those all those uh, uh articles in into the show notes i would be happy to put them in so people can uh access them easier cool uh okay um so this partly answers my uh, second question why did you why you did not go with angels or family investors uh have you ever considered that yes we we've considered it um the i guess there's you know several trade-offs um you know if you're taking investment in like an angel maybe less so in a friends or family but definitely with an angel or any type of vc you're going to be um giving up your equity in exchange for that capital. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it seems like if it it's a product that you have the potential to do crowdfunding, um, that that solution is going to win if, you, if you're looking at um, kind of an analysis on the, the pros and cons. I would say that crowdfunding is going to win almost every time. Okay. Unless it's, I guess, where you run into an issue is if you need a lot of capital. And that's where going a VC or angel route um, would would then give you that that greater amount of amount of capital that you couldn't get through crowdfunding. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in keeping your equity as long as you can, because especially if you have a good product or if you are starting a good company, you're going to grow, and that equity, which today is let's say ten dollars. Would be worth of you know maybe hundred thousands, especially the the beginning equity. And if you do well, so you know I, I'm with you there. So I was just happy that you explained that so people understand you know the the kind of risk why going with the angels sometimes is not the best idea. And I think the angels were more popular when uh, crowdfunding was not out there yet, right? Yep, definitely. You 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 mentioned something very important that you know you, we had a product which was. Uh, compatible with crowdfunding do you think in a coffee industry are there some products which you think will not do very well on kickstarter Uh, yeah i would say um if it's a product that isn't consumer facing so it's not a if the end user isn't a uh, consumer um then it's probably going to be much harder so something like if you are creating a new machine for sorting coffee beans um at the farm level right and sorting out the different grades of coffee beans I think that would be something that's harder to do crowdfunding because um, the crowd aspect or like from Kickstarter, Indiegogo, any of those platforms, they're mainly uh, end users who are are funding the project. So um, as long as it's an end consumer product, I think that you can do crowdfunding with it. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So why did you decide to go with Kickstarter and not with Indiegogo or with other platforms? So we did a lot of um, analysis on what projects had been successful on each of those platforms, specifically Indiegogo and Kickstarter were the two platforms we were looking at. And if I remember correctly, there was maybe like 10 times as many coffee projects that had been funded on Kickstarter versus Indiegogo. So the way that we looked at, at that is there are more people who are already on the existing Kickstarter platform who are interested in funding coffee-related projects. So that's why um, we thought that Kickstarter would be a better place to launch our project. Mm -hmm. Well, Kickstarter has one risk that if you don't uh, get to the goal, you don't get the money at all, right? Correct. Which Indigo has... I think it's some kind of program where you can um, balance that risk. They have the flexible funding where yeah, the, you receive the funds even if you don't achieve your goal. Um, but if we didn't achieve our goal, we didn't have the capital to go into production and buy all the tooling anyway. So 
Um, and Indiegogo also has another nice feature, which some people choose to use it for, is Kickstarter, you have to wait until the end of the campaign before any of the funds are transferred to you. With Indiegogo, the funds are actually transferred to you immediately or within like the next day. So like as your campaign is going on, those funds are coming into your bank account. So there are some people who they will then use the funds that are coming in to buy advertising. Mm -hmm. So as the campaign is going on, they're actually buying advertising with the funds that are already pledged to the, the project. Um, but we didn't, our approach wasn't to do, and it was more of an organic approach and we didn't want to do, uh, that sort of advertising spend. So, okay. So your, you said to yourself, if we don't get 35,000, this cannot happen. So we, we actually don't need that 32,000 or 29,000, right? Right. Uh, okay. What would happen if you would not get the uh, funding through Kickstarter? What would be your next step? Did you have a plan B? Uh, we didn't have a serious plan B, no. So you knew you were going to be funded? We had a pretty good idea um, because we did. So throughout the process, um, we were surveying members of our community and of our audience and everyone who was helping develop the grinder. And so, you know, we would ask them directly. Uh, they helped us choose what the goal, like the uh, backer levels would be on Kickstarter, what the prices were going to be. And then they told us what prices they were going to back at. And we could see a distribution of our audience and actually kind of do the math to figure out an estimate of, okay, well, with the people we have in our audience right now, um, you know, this, and this is kind of a double-edged sword because you don't want to rely too heavily on what people say they're going to do in the future. It's always better to ask what they've done in the past. Um, but we were using those numbers to get an idea for the current interest we had and the current number of people we had interested in purchasing the product before we launched the campaign. Okay, wow. We're going to talk about the audience just in a sec, but let's start the campaign. So what were your first steps uh, when you decided, yes, Kickstarter is the way to go? What were your first steps to basically, how did you start? Mm-hmm. Um, well, from, I think from, I mean, the very first week that we started working on this project, we knew we wanted to do a Kickstarter. So or our plan was we're going to do a Kickstarter to raise the capital, to make the tooling, to bring the product to life. So really it was from the very beginning we started doing things that would then benefit the Kickstarter launch. Um, for instance, we created an Instagram account. And we started uh, posting pictures and engaging with a lot of um, people who are interested in coffee. And the reason being is because when you launch a Kickstarter campaign, you have a much better chance of the campaign being successful if you've already built up an audience of people who are interested in the product. And just from seeing other projects and like hearing other people talk about crowdfunding, we knew this. And so our goal from the very, very beginning as we're developing the product was also to build an audience of people who were interested in, in purchasing the product um, because we thought that would give the Kickstarter the best chance of success. Okay. Uh, so you basically focused on building your audience. Now, you said you started the Instagram account. Do you know how many followers you had uh, when you launched? So, um, well, one, one thing that's interesting that we did right before we launched was we did a, a pre-launch campaign, and this actually ties in with our Instagram followers. So this was in December, um, and then we launched the campaign in February. And so starting in December, we, Brandon and I started manually direct messaging every one of our Instagram followers. And this is by hand, typing in username by username. And at that time, we had 5,000 Instagram followers. Nice. And so we messaged all 5,000 of them 5, of them by hand. And we, our message was, um, we're going to be launching the Kickstarter soon um, as a way of saying thank you for everyone for following the project and supporting us. We're going to give away the first 25 grinders that we make. To enter to win one, go to this URL, which is just our website, and enter in your email address. Um, 
once they entered their email address, it loaded a new page. And on that page, it said, okay, you have one entry to win. Uh, and then it listed, here's the total number of entries and here's the time left. And then below that, it said, friends, don't let friends drink pre-ground coffee and said, share on Facebook for 10 more entries, share on Twitter for 10 more entries. And then it had a unique URL where people could send that to their friends. And if their friends signed up with that URL, it would earn them five entries for each friend who signed up. And so that was how we kind of really um, grew our, our reach and our, the number of people who knew about the product and who were interested in the product before the campaign launched. And I think we, we basically grew from about 1,000-ish emails to 7,000 over the course of a month. Oh, wow. Congrats. That's a very good one. So you, yeah. you guilt-tripped guilt the people <laughs> with uh, that fact that, you know, they should not leave their friends grinding coffee with, uh, or not grinding coffee. Not drinking pre-ground coffee. Yeah. yeah. yeah no one yeah, wants yeah. their friends to drink pre-ground coffee. <laughs> That's nasty. <laughs> What worked? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was successful. I mean, there was some people who had earned over a thousand entries. So, you know, they had referred over 100 to 200 people. Did you use other social media except uh, Instagram? No, our focus was pri primarily on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And as I see that it was a very uh, strategic funnel, so it, it made totally sense. Did you, did you kind of uh, wing it or did you develop it in ahead that this is how it's going to happen? Um, how the pre-launch campaign was going to happen? Yeah, the funnel which you developed, you know, the Instagram from Instagram, uh, the oh, Instagram the email. messages and then emails and then, yeah. Uh, we, yeah, we just kind of developed that as we were going along. The, the pre-launch campaign, we, we took a, there's an open source code that Harry's, the razor company, actually mm -hmm. put out. And the way that they structured their, because they did the same thing, they did a pre-launch campaign. Um, but the way that theirs was structured was a linear reward mechanism. So it said once you saw, entered your email, it said, okay, if you get five friends to sign up, you get a free razor. If you get 10 friends to sign up, you get a razor and shaving cream and a brush. Or, and so it was linear for each person. Uh, where we did it is more of a lottery reward where we said there's 25 total prizes. And as you share, you're basically earning more tickets in the raffle. Um, and that worked, we, we chose to do that because our product was a higher price point than uh, the, the linear style. So we thought it would have been kind of a high or like almost an unachievable thing if someone enters their email and then we're like, get 50 friends to sign up or 100 friends to sign up and then you'll get a grinder. Uh, and that's why we chose to go to the lottery versus the linear. Yeah, with grinders, grinder it actually sounds uh, better to me. It's, you know. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I love Harry's. Uh, I did not know that they are Kickstarter guys, but I do share with Harry's. Here's a free yeah, plug it, for them. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a, I don't think it was a Kickstarter. There's actually a post on the four hour work week blog oh, about okay. how they, it was when they were launching their company and they just did this kind of pre-launch email thing. And supposedly they gathered a hundred thousand emails in about a week. So Okay, I'll have to check this out. So did you use any tool for this? Because I know that, you know, if you uh, collect Instagram followers and emails, there are sometimes tools which actually help you to manage these kind of contests. Yes, and so that's um, Harry's open source, their tool, and oh. then it's written in Ruby on Rails. And so we just modified their, their tool to change from the linear reward mechanism to the lottery reward mechanism. So we're kind of just changing the reward mechanics, but a lot of the functionality um, from like user referrals and keeping track of all the points and everything was already there. And so we just had to change some stuff up. Got it. So the, yeah, so the, um, the open source code was actually a real software. I don't know. I thought for whatever reason, I thought it was uh, their like system, what they, how they implemented the whole thing. Oh yeah. No, it's just on, it's on GitHub. So you can just download it and run it there. Cool. So <clears throat> now you have started a campaign, you are, it's happening. Was there any like a moment or event or anything which skyrocketed the whole thing? Because you guys went from go thirty five thousand dollars to like three hundred something, right? 
Right. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, 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 we were fully funded. So we hit the $35,000 goal in 18 hours, which is and, crazy right away. It's amazing. So, yeah. And so we actually, I, we could have done it a lot faster, but we, we chose to launch at, we launched at 5 PM on a Sunday night. Which, if you look at the data on when the best time to launch is, that is typically one of the worst times to launch. Um, but we did that is a it was kind of a secret launch. So all the media, um, like the reporters and blogs that we had reached out to, they thought we were launching on Monday morning, but we actually launched that Sunday night, and then we only told Team Handground that we were launching that Sunday night because we wanted them to be able to claim all the early bird rewards because they had helped develop the product. And so it was kind of like a secret launch uh, for Team Handground. Oh, you said media. So we skipped that. So you did uh, do some kind of like a, a press release or what, what happened? Yeah. Uh, so we gathered a list of the coffee blogs and websites and um, you know tried to do a press release to reach out to all of them. And we didn't really see any benefit. Like there was... No, because no, Kickstarter gives you analytics on where traffic, where backers are coming from. And there was none of those. Well, first, we didn't get very many people to write about us. And then the ones that did, they drove, it was like less than, you know, 10 people per per outlet. Um, but oh, that's sad. Yeah, it wasn't the, the PR or getting articles that wasn't where our, the, all the, activity in our campaign was coming from. It was coming from the people who were in the audience that we had already built leading up to the campaign. That's where all those initial backers came from. Not me. I actually found you guys uh, through uh, Daily Coffee News. Yeah. Yeah. So that was on the first, well, I'm, I'm talking about just the first 18 hours. And then once we hit the goal in 18 hours, then we started seeing uh, websites pick it up because it now became a story of our product or project was funded so quickly. And that is the story that is worth writing about to media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we saw like a lot more articles coming out um, once we were able to say that metric. Yeah. Just for disclosure, I am a backer or actually the Slovak company Green Plantation is a backer of the, what do you call it? The distribution pack. So we yep. want to get 12, right? Yep. 10, 10, 12. I don't even know. <laughs> How many? Uh, I think it's, I think it's listed as 10 on Kickstarter, but the way that our master cartons work out are, this is kind of a secret, but they're six units each. So I'm pretty sure we're going to be sending 12 to uh, the people who backed us at the distributor level. Oh, should I keep this in a podcast or should I get it out? Oh, no, it's fine. You okay. Can it if, yeah. <laughs> no, nice. it'd be a little Easter egg for the people listening. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> We talked about the, the social media, the Instagram, and the amazing email funnel you got. We talked that medias did not really work in the beginning, but they worked a little bit later once you, you got funded and it actually became a story. But the question is, you know, what other strate strategies worked very well you can, you know, recommend to other people? Well, uh, the one I think that's important, and this kind of ties into what we've said previously, is what happens when your campaign has a lot of momentum right at the beginning is you then rise up in the popularity section on the most popular projects on Kickstarter. And so Kickstarter on its own just has a lot of traffic of people who are interested in browsing new products, seeing the new projects. And um, when you, by having the, the big group of people who are interested in the product um, set up before the campaign, when you launch it, they're all going to back at the same time, and that's going to give you a lot of momentum out, out of the gate. And so then you kind of reach this buoyancy point where once you get high enough on the popularity page, people who are organically on Kickstarter start discovering your project and backing it. And that then kind of keeps you at the top of the popularity page for the duration of your project. And so that's, again, why it's so important to have a lot of momentum right at the beginning. Okay, so it's all about the momentum to score higher with uh, Kickstarter popularity uh, algorithm and then basically get all these people who just browse the Kickstarter. Right. Yeah, I think close, and this is off Kickstarter's analytics, which there is some debate about how accurate they are, 
But from their analytics, I think 40 to 50% of our backers discovered the project organically on Kickstarter. How much you said again? Sorry. 40 to 50%. Oh, wow. So that means that if you wouldn't gain that momentum, you would possibly get only 150,000. Right. That's a lot of, uh, this, that, that, that's, that's, there's a lot of in stake for this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why it, it does pay to kind of reach that buoyancy point where you're going to stay in the, the top of the popular, popular section on Kickstarter. I got, I got this question uh, here, which it sounds like, would you describe your crowdsourcing as successful and why? Um, going from 35,000 uh, to 300, I would say that your answer would be yes, but I, you never know. So what, what's your answer on this? Yeah, I, I would say the campaign was successful. Yeah. Um, it's, it's right about where we were predicting it would be before we launched it. So... Are you serious? Um, mm-hmm. I thought that you were predicting to have thirty-five thousand. No, goal? that's that's just where we set the goal. Okay. Um, that was kind of the the minimum amount that we thought we could do the project with, and we knew that by if we were able to reach our goal quickly, so the metric eighteen hours, um, we thought that we had just seen other you know by studying other projects. Um, Projects who reach their goal quickly generally have an easier time getting press or media coverage than product projects that don't. Um, and so that, but as, as far as when we were trying to predict how much would the project raise in total, um, we were estimating right around 300,000. Wow. How, how did you do that? Ba- just based on the followers you have and interest and uh, I don't know, how, how, how did you do that? Yeah, so the, the followers we had um, helped kind of compute, uh, I guess, the, the distribution for what levels people would back at. Like, are they going to back the black and white grinder for uh, $20 less than the nickel grinder? And what's the distribution going to be there? And then as far as the total funds raised, we were looking at other similar Kickstarter projects. So you have like the Duo, Coffee Steeper, uh, Cold Brewer, um Akaya scale and we kind of looked at their numbers and then we actually reached out to those those guys and and we talked to them and we asked what they did before their campaign how they set up for it and we kind of were looking at where how they were positioned before their campaign launched and then how we were positioned and, and then we were extrapolating from there by taking in our metrics of where we know people are going to back how much they're going to back for and then also the different levels of preparation assuming that the audience on Kickstarter who had backed those previous campaigns was still in the Kickstarter community or, or they would be interested in backing other similar coffee projects. Wow. That, that, that sounds very, very uh, sophisticated. You know, many people think that going to Kickstarter or any uh, crowdsourcing, you just put up your page and people come and uh, will give their money. There's much more than that, right? I think so. I think for a lot of the campaigns that are successful, um, there's there's a lot more that goes into it. Now, as you finished your campaign, as you know, we can say that you are a, a, a Kickstarter hacker. What would you recommend to uh, companies like me who maybe wants to start a roasting business or you know um, do a product on Kickstarter? Are there any cool tips for that? Um. I would yeah I would say it comes down to try, trying to build build the community and the audience and the way to do that is to try to be transparent in what you're working on and to involve the community in helping make decisions about what the product is going to be um, when what we found is a lot of people so when we would face and I guess this this kind of comes down to um, explaining how we were engaging with the community to make decisions. There are certain decisions that we found um, the community is really good at helping with, and there's other ones that they're not. And kind of an easy way to think about it is a subjective decision versus objective decision. And so a subjective being a matter of taste or preference or uh, any sort of aesthetic. And so it's not 
there's no way to just apply math to the problem to figure out the answer. Where an objective decision, you can engineer a solution and say this is objectively the correct solution or this solution will work or, you know, this is black or white. Um, and when you're making a subjective decision, you have to make assumptions. And so what we would try and do is to be very um, aware of when we were making an assumption and then we would go to the community we put together a survey and then go to the community and gather their input on that decision. And so that really makes people feel involved in the process um, because they are ultimately the ones making the decisions and then being sure to communicate what the results were. So don't, it needs to be a, a two way um, thing where you're not just asking them to give, give, give. You also need to give back and let them know what the results were. How did their answers compare? to those of the rest of the people in the community and, um, you know, how are you, like what decisions did you make and how was that valuable um, from the input that they gave you? And that kind of creates this communication loop. Um, and if, if you can keep that going and, and build the number of people who are involved in that loop um, leading up to your campaign, then your campaign is going to have a much better chance of being successful. This is a worth of gold. Uh, I, I like how you approached it. And I remember uh, I participated in one of your, uh, like, uh, quiz, not quizzes, what you call them? Um, a survey. Surveys, sorry. Yeah. So I participated in one of the surveys uh, when you asked in September that, you know, shall we ship or shall we uh, fix some something? Maybe you know it better, like uh, something like the cap or something? I, I don't really recall that. Uh, but at that time, for me, the decision was very emotional, kind of like, I want it right now, you know, ship it. But on the other hand, it's like today when I'm thinking about it with like, actually, it makes sense to develop, to have a great grinder rather than having a like, you know, half done grinder. So I guess you have to calculate with these uh, answers too, right? Yep. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I remember that because we were considering making a major design change, um, which would have required a lot more engineering work, resources, prototyping, and so it would have delayed the project. Um, and so the community, and, that, and that's, that's kind of what we initially, we got really excited about this idea because we thought we had come up with a, you know, we had figured out our silver bullet. And then, um, you know, after thinking about it more, we realized that that was an assumption we were making. And, you know, we were assuming that it would be worth it to pursue that in in and, and I guess the the trade-off was with hand ground the top, um, you have to turn it to the right to unlock it or to release it. And normally, like if you have a jar, you unscrew to the left. And so that was kind of the big thing that we were afraid to do. Mm -hmm. And that's it's, we presented that to the community and it, it transparently laid out what the problem was that we were looking at. And um, that's when the community then gave us the their majority opinion said, you know what, let's stick with the current design, make it so that it turns right to unlock and um, keep moving forward so we can get the project finished. Okay, cool. Uh, but today I would, you know, be open to other <laughs> suggestions because, you know, you, you are kind of late with this project, like almost a year. So I guess that openness and kind of open communication helps you also with um, like keep that trust that this is going to happen because not all Kickstarter projects happen, right? Sometimes people lose their money, you know, so uh, there's always that risk. But in your case, you, you always, I, I know that I get tons of emails from you guys. So, uh, and the question in this long intro is, did you ever get uh, some kind of customers who were really, really unhappy about the progress? It were, were really unhappy about the fact that they'll get the grinders much, much later than uh, promised. Yeah, yeah, there have been, um, you know, we, we, we take the approach where we try to transparently communicate everything that's going on. When, when the problem does arise, we explain the problem, explain um, why the problem happened, and then we explain how we're going to solve the problem or what steps are being taken to solve the problem. 
Um, but it is a very difficult thing to manage expectations properly because um, we err on the side of trying to be optimistic always with how quickly things are going to be done. And then uh, a lot of times Murphy's Law comes into play time and time again and things end up taking longer than we expected. And so um, we have had some backers who you know, are unreasonably frustrated um, you know, if someone is frustrated, we will, we've called backers and, uh, you know, tried to answer any questions they have, concerns they have, you know, if anyone isn't willing to wait anymore, they can request a refund. Oh, and, wow. uh, yeah. And so, you know, if, if someone wants a refund, then, then we refund them. Um, because, we're, we're, you know, we understand that it is frustrating to have to wait longer than expected. Um, but overall, our backers have just been tremendously supportive, um, and not like a good example is with the <clears throat> the inner burr. Um, we encountered a problem where the the ceramic factory miscalculated the shrinkage rate, and so the burrs are made with an injection molding process where liquid a liquid ceramic mixture is injected injected into the mold. And then um, when the mold is opened, you have this soft, it's called a green body. It's kind of like a, a soft ceramic. Um, and that has to then go in a kiln for eight days. And when it's in the kiln, a lot of the moisture leaves the green body. And that's what causes the shrinkage. And so it's known that the ceramic is going to shrink. It's just we were off by about a 3% of how much it was going to shrink. Mm. Um, and so when we discovered this problem, we sent an email to everyone who is back the back the Kickstarter project, and also to anyone who had pre-ordered after the Kickstarter ended, and we received over a hundred emails back of people being supportive and wanting they every basically the general message was we're on board for building a quality product. Then and it, it, even if it takes a little bit more time, we're here to to back you guys up and to get it right. So. Um, seeing that kind of support from the community really makes it um, just help, you know, when we do run into problems, they're frustrating and having that kind of support from the community really helps keep everyone's spirits high. So, well, there's one from me here. Yeah. <laughs> Heads up, guys. I mean, I'm, you know, seriously, like I was very excited when I saw this because this was a problem which I was facing for a long time. And not only as a consumer, but, you know, with this European company, we offer people easy ways to brew coffee. That's always always my philosophy that when you <clears throat> take the specialty coffee, you don't have to have Lamarzocos at home. The best way to brew this coffee is with easy apparatus, you know, V60 or Melita and, you know, a, a nice grinder. And that's when the problem comes because the cheapest grinders we can offer to, to our customers are baratas, which, you know, are electric and they start at much higher level. And then we have these uh, Harios and other brands, which I was never happy with, you know, none of them. And I actually dumped Hario now because we decided not to sell it anymore. And we are hoping that you guys can save us with your grinder very soon. Yeah, we're, uh, we're really excited to, to get the grinders out to everyone. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a great replacement for you guys. When, when do you uh, plan to ship it? Uh, right now we're planning to ship in July. July. And mm -hmm. yeah, and they'll, for international orders, they'll be shipped direct. And then the U.S. orders will be shipped um, via a container, a shipping container, and then distributed um, in the U.S. Cool. So... I come home from holidays and there will be a grinder for me. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, <clears throat> good luck with that. I'm, as I said, really excited about that. Um, so when it comes to international distributors, because we have a lot of listeners, not only in United States and Europe, but all over the world, uh, how they can buy these grinders? Let's say they did not know that, you know, we're running a Kickstarter campaign and now they say, oh, this is an awesome grinder. I want to buy it. How, how they can buy it? Yeah, so for anyone interested in distribution, uh, just go to our website, which is handground.com, and then scroll down to the very bottom, and there's a link there for international distributors. And then if you're in the United States and you have a coffee shop that you're interested in uh, distributing through, 
we also have a separate link for us wholesale. Um, and so whichever one applies to you, just click that link and it takes you to a, a form with some of, where we can get some of your information and then we'll follow up with you from there. Okay. Thank you so much. So these were my questions, or actually, I have to again credit uh, Michelle Broad who uh, made these questions, and I just a little bit added a little bit more to it. And we have also some questions from our listen from our listeners, and they posted it on the Coffee Is Me Facebook group. So are you ready for them? Sure. Okay. Daniel Gonski is asking you, how do we know when the timing is right to launch a Kickstarter? The way that we approached it was we looked at all of the historical data. Uh, on Kickstarter, which you can access with a bit of Googling. And we were looking at the total number of funds contributed per month. And so our assumption there was the, the best time would be to launch your campaign during one of the months where the most funds are being uh, spent on Kickstarter. And, and this was a couple over a year ago, but if I remember correctly, um, December was one of the lowest months, so one of the worst times to launch a Kickstarter. And it's actually, it, it's, it's interesting because it, for the rest of the commerce world of any kind of goods, um, December is one of the best months because of Christmas. But mm -hmm. with Kickstarter, since you're backing a project that will be delivered in the future, it seems like everyone's spending money on buying products that are available immediately to uh, give as gifts. Um, and so less funds are going towards Kickstarter. Um, then starting in January, you start to see a, uh, an increase, like a, a steady linear increase in the amount of funds that are contributed per month. Um, if I remember right there, the peak is somewhere around April or May for the year. Um, and then it, it starts to t kind of stays up pretty high for the summer months and then starts to uh, descend downward again, heading back into the winter. So um, I would say April or May is probably the best time of the year to launch. So Marshall Morris is asking, was it all done in-house or was there a media or a company which helped you with this? Um, everything was done by Brandon and I. From all the assets that are on the Kickstarter page to writing the script for the Kickstarter video, we, we found a film student or she had recently graduated doing film work um, to help us shoot the video and do the lighting and camera. And we found her by making a Facebook ad, which was just a YouTube video of me <laughs> explaining our project and saying we're looking for someone to help us shoot a video. And then we used the Facebook advertising platform to target that ad to people who were interested in filmmaking who lived in our city that we were in, in Santa Barbara. And so that's how we were able to produce our video for around $1,000, I think. Isn't Facebook awesome with this uh, advertisement? I just, I'm so much in love with that. It's all the yeah, the, the granularity you can get is, is amazing. It's fascinating. Anyhow, okay, you, you mentioned video, and I did not ask any questions about the video, but I think that's important. So you said that you hired a student, so you saved some bucks. But uh, did you have any kind of a storyline in mind or is there some storyline which works very well on, on Kickstarter? Yeah, yes. Um, we, we studied a lot of other successful campaign videos and you can, there, there's the general storyline of, you know, stating the problem uh, or the pain and then introducing the solution and then going into like features and story. And there's different formats that, you know, some people try and systematize it to like the ADA format, which is attention, interest, desire, action. And, you know, you can generally apply those when you're, um, whether you're writing, uh, you know, written content or it's something that is a video. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we did study a lot of other Kickstarter videos and try to, dissect them to pick out, you know, what is the order that information should be presented and um, to lead to, uh, you know, a successful video. The videos on Kickstarter, are they more funny or are they more serious? Which, which are uh, the benefit? It seems in general the serious ones do better. Hmm. But you can have a little bit of humor, but I think the ones that 
if there's too much humor, it then is funny, but it almost loses credibility on, and you, you almost have to question on, are they actually going to be able to execute? Um, and so I think being serious helps set a better or portray a, a, be, a more confidence in the people who are watching the video. Mm-hmm. What if somebody says, oh, I don't have budget, I don't like videos, I don't want to be on the videos. Uh, what are the chances to get funded without a video? Without a video, it's very low. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, it's, I, I've come across it before, but it's, it's a very low percentage of projects that get funded without a video. All right. Next question is by my buddy, Joshua Hyman. Would he run a Kickstarter for me? Okay, there you go. Would you start a kick, Kickstarter for him? <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid I just don't have time uh, with everything going on with Handground. It's uh, uh, from <laughs> 24 hours a day. That's what we're working on. Okay, we can ask him the same. Would you, Joshua? Would you distribute the Handground in Holland? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. There you go. All right, I have a last question. That's actually mine. Uh, how about resources? Do you have any? Tips for I don't know podcasts, uh, blogs, which people should read up on when they uh, if they're planning to start a Kickstarter campaign. For our workweek blog, just in general, it's a good blog. Um, relative to Kickstarter specifically, uh, there's a really good series. I believe it's Stonemeyer Games, and he's run several Kickstarter campaigns, and he outlines. Uh, you know, some, everyone thinks about the campaign and getting the campaign to be successful and how do we make it successful. But then once it is successful, you actually, it's, it's, it can be quite a challenge to try to distribute and, and deliver all of those products. And um, a lot, I think a problem that some people forget to do is to accurately estimate and calculate how much it's going to cost to fulfill every one of those orders. Um So I think it's Stone, yeah, StoneMeyerGames.com. Um, he did free shipping worldwide on one of his Kickstarters, and he explains how he was able to do that and not go bankrupt. Awesome. And then there's also another one called uh, Foxtrot Games. It's blog.foxtrotgames.com. And they also explain um, how to do fulfillment, the cost with fulfillment, and just the steps for delivery And uh, there's actually a third one I have on my list here is gameswithoutstrings.wordpress.com. And they have a really good series on using Amazon for uh, fulfilling your Kickstarter rewards. All right, Daniel. I, I will, I, this, this was amazing. Like, I learned so much. I mean, I'm totally serious. Like, you know, this opened a new world for me. And, you know, everybody's thinking about Kickstarter. Everybody has some product they probably thinking that, oh, this might be, you know, good fit for the Kickstarter. And this really opened uh, my eyes. So thank you so much for uh, doing this. Yeah, of course. I'm uh, glad I could help and glad that, you know, was able to say some things that, uh, you know, you found valuable. If uh, you or anyone else has questions, please, uh, or wants advice, um, send me an email, daniel at handground.com. Do you use Facebook? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because do you want to be in our Facebook group and people can ask sure. a question there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll put it there. All right. Okay, Daniel. Bye and thanks again. All right. Thanks, Larry. I told you this episode is full of gold. The only thing is left for you to go and go through the process yourself. You will find all the links mentioned in the show in our show notes on coffeeis.me website. And of course, as always, feel free to join our Facebook group, Coffee Is Me. Over 700 coffee professionals can't wait to see you there. All right, guys, I'm signing off. Have a great summer and see you perhaps in September or maybe sooner. Hmm. Well, let's see. Bye.